1984, Alexei Pajitnov, a Soviet researcher, wrote a small game to test the capabilities of one of his institution's new computers. This game featured random pieces that the player had to rearrange to fill in rows. He named his creation Tetris, and it swept across various Soviet institutions like wildfire, destroying productivity in its wake. Knowing that he had a successful game on hand, he decided to reach out for help to have it sold outside of the Soviet Union. But in doing so, he started a decade-long saga that would result in Tetris selling millions of copies across the globe without Pajanov ever seeing a single cent. Today we're going to be looking more into the weird history of Tetris, talk about the game itself, and look at some of the various versions of it that have been released throughout the years. So stick around and join us as we put all the pieces together on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 93rd episode of our Video Game Nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. This week, we're looking back at Tetris, originally released for the Electronica 60 way back in 1984, so 38 years ago. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who suffers from acute Tetris syndrome, my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's it like seeing colors and shapes everywhere you go? You know, Dave, it was pretty weird at first. It all seems to be in order now. <laughs> I fully expected you to say something stupid like, oh, I see colors and shapes everywhere I go. What are you talking about? Because everybody does, but yours was way, way better. <laughs> that was clever. Mm, that indeed. Oh, my <clears throat> goodness. So a week has passed since we last been here. What have you played in the previous week? Well, Dave, this last week I played some Rocket League. <laughs> <laughs> I played some RuneScape. Uh, I played some more Bannerlord. And uh, I believe that was actually it. It was not a very game-heavy week. Uh, nope. Had a lot going on, so I didn't get a whole lot of time to play. Yep. But what about yourself? Rocket League, V-Rising, a little bit. Medieval Dynasty, Rogue Legacy 2, some Tetris in preparation for this episode, and I have been dabbling in Diablo Immortal, which is... Ooh. Yeah. How's that? It's pay-to-win Diablo, I guess. I haven't really got to the, the wall yet. Everyone says that there's a just a wall... And I saw an article the other day that said that it would cost you $110,000 to be maxed out in the game. But admittedly, I haven't hit I haven't hit a wall yet where I've had to pay. So at the moment, it's a fairly enjoyable Diablo game. Once you get past the whole needing to control with the on mobile, 
kind of concept, you know. But it, it I mean, it, I don't dislike it yet. <laughs> I'm sure when I hit that wall, I maybe like grumble, grumble. But so far, I, I'm enjoying myself. I don't know anyone else playing it. It may be very different to in with other people, but so far it's been a solo journey for me. I just wonder if, if like they say it's 110,000 to get to max level. Is that just like quickly immediately? Or is that saying that's the only way to, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, I don't know the answer to that. I'm still working my way, way through it. I haven't played more than a couple levels. And so far it's a pretty, straightforward Diablo game, maybe simplified a little bit for the mobile phone, but I'm not, not enjoying myself. That's, I mean, I'm not, not enjoying myself. It's Diablo. It's, it's a new Diablo at the moment and it's scratching a good itch. It's tough for me. I really like Diablo two. And of course we played Diablo two together, but I also really like Diablo three. And this one plays at least in my opinion, more like the third one. And I really don't know what I prefer I kind of I was thinking about that earlier today and I'm kind of torn, but that's all right. That's all right. That's what we're playing. I, I know it sounds like a lot, but it wasn't a really big gaming week for me either. I just touched base with a few here and there, although I played a little bit more Diablo Immortal. It's easier to play on mobile when you're doing other things, you know. True. Very true. But today we're here to talk about Tetris and Tetris is. I think Tetris is one of those games that's pretty universally recognized. I I would think that even people that maybe aren't gamers have heard heard or played Tetris. Same can probably be said for most Mario games. And ironically enough, those are two of the most prolific games of all time, believe it or not. Way back in 1978, Alexei Pajanov worked as a summer intern at the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Once he graduated in 1979, he accepted a job there working on speech recognition at the Academy's Computer Center. Now, whenever the center had received no equipment, various researchers would write small programs for the new equipment in order to test its computing capabilities, you know, as a showcase for what it could do. And this became Alexei's excuse for making games. He saw computer games as a way to bridge the gap between logic and emotion. And games allowed him to work with both puzzles and mathematics, which were two subjects that he loved, frankly. He was looking to make a game and while searching for inspiration, he recalled childhood memories of playing Pentominoes. This is a game where you create pictures using various shapes. In his mind... Alexei imagined a game consisting of random pieces, pentominoes, that the player would turn to fill in rows. Now, the word pentomino is derived from the Greek word for five and domino, and is basically a polygon made up of five equal sized squares connected edge to edge. Now, with five equal squares, there are 12 different unique shapes that can be made this way. As Alexei was developing Tetris, he determined that 12 unique shapes was too complex, and so he scaled it back to become a tetramino, which is four equal shaped squares. Now, Tetris uses what we call one-sided tetraminoes. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Maybe tetraminoes. I want to say tetraminoes, but tetraminoes sounds better. 
and with one side of tatamino's there are seven distinct possibilities so instead of 12 he tear, t- tore it down to, to to seven and with this basic notion in mind you know tetramino's which are four polygons you know four equal sized squares that make different shapes and the concept of random pieces that would fill in rows he got to work making a game he settled on the name tetris which is a word created from a combination of tetra meaning four and his favorite sport which was tennis now, it's important to know that the Electronica 60 had no graphic interface or graphics, really. It was completely command-based, like some of the older computers we've looked at, like the Apple or the um, Commodore, where everything was done with commands. It was all text commands. And so the first version of Tetris, the pieces and the field, for that, mat- fat- that matter, were all spaces and brackets, you know, at first, all he had was these shapes coming down and they would fill in lines. And he realized that the completed lines inevitably would fill the screen too quickly. And so he decided to delete them once they were finished. And so one of the key gameplay elements to Tetris was actually created out of necessity to make the game last longer. Hmm. That's interesting. I know, right? Now the first version of the, the very first version of Tetris with all these basics, very basic game. Uh, you know, these shapes that were made out of basically brackets and spaces came down. If they filled a line, line disappeared. There was nothing else to it. Was completed around June 6, 1984. There were no scoring system, no levels. But the truth of the matter was Alexi couldn't stop playing it as it was. And so he understood that it was an addictive game and and likely a hit. And so he takes his first version and he presents it to his colleagues who quickly become addicted to it. And within a few weeks, every Moscow Institute computer had a copy of Tetris on it. In fact, it actually had to be banned shortly after from some of the institutions because no one was getting any work accomplished. They were all too busy playing Tetris. Nice. And he knew it was a hit. I mean, when you have something like that, you know it's going to be a hit, you know? Oh, absolutely. So the next step was making a color version for the IBM computer. And to do so, some of his colleagues put, put him in touch with Vadim Gerasimov, who is a 16-year-old intern at the Soviet Academy. And so this dude was able to create an IBM version in about three weeks. And once the basic version was in place, he proposed adding some features to it. They agreed, and so he took roughly another month to create an IBM version that included scorekeeping and sound effects. And so now some of the basics of Tetris are in place. Now this is where the history of Texas... Texas? Where the hell did I get Texas from? Good lord. (laughs) Now this is where the history of Tetris gets messy. Tesla's in Texas. Tesla's in Texas. So Alexi wanted to export Tetris, but he had no no idea of how the business side of gaming worked, and he didn't know where to start. Furthermore, his superiors at the Academy were not happy with the game's success because he was a researcher supposed to be doing researchy things, whatever those were. And even worse, this is the Soviet Union in 1984. Intellectual property didn't exist. 
everything was owned by the Soviet Union. That's the concept of communism. And so Soviet researchers couldn't sell anything that they created. So Alexei goes to his supervisor who kind of knows life outside the Soviet Union and he asks for help publishing Tetris. In fact, more so what he did is he offered to transfer his rights of Tetris to the Academy. So in 1986, Victor Bravin, Alexei's supervisor, sent a copy of Tetris to Hungarian game publisher Novatrade. From there, copies of the game began circulating throughout Hungary and Poland. Now, during a visit to Hungary, Robert Stein, who was an international software salesman, stumbled across it, and he immediately recognized its potential as a hit game. And so he reached out to the Academy, and he got nothing. So then he decides to reach out to Alexei and Brabin himself by fax to obtain the licensing rights. The researchers, in return, indicated interest in forming an agreement, but they were unaware that in the Western world, a fax communication like this could be considered a legal contract. And so once he had the agreement, Stein began to approach other companies to produce the game internationally. And so at the 1987 Consumer Electronics Show, a copy of Tetsis was distributed, but various companies were very skeptical of its Soviet origins and wanted to do nothing with it. Uh, for instance, Broderbun thought it was a good game, but they said, uh-uh, we can't do anything with, with the... With you know, anything made in the USSR. Remember, this is like height of the Cold War when Russia and the United States were basically at odds with one another. Not that it's any better nowadays, but back then was definitely the case to where nobody in the United States trusted anything that came out of Russia. It's funny how history repeats itself. Just a little bit there, Dave. So ultimately, Robert Stein was able to sign two agreements. European rights were purchased by Mirrorsoft, and American rights went to Spectrum Halobyte. Now this is, let me remind you, he sold it without yet having signed a contract with the Soviet Union for the game. Now, so these companies took these licenses and they ran with it, right? Mm -hmm. So before, before releasing Tetris in the United States... The CEO of Spectrum Halibite decided to go all in on the Soviet design, whereas everyone else didn't want to touch anything Russian. This guy says, you know what? We're going to we're going to showcase the Russian aspect of this. And so he asked for an overhaul of the game's graphics and music. The background was made to showcase Russian parks and buildings, and the music was designed to uh, have basically be reminiscent of Soviet folklore music. The company's goal was to make people want to buy a Russian product. So the game came complete with a red, red package and Cyrillic text. Now again, this was really rare to see during the Cold War while the Berlin Wall was still up, you know? Right. So Marisoft releases their version in November of 1987, and Spectrum Halibite releases theirs in January of 1988. And admittedly, it was a commercial success on both accounts. In the course of a year, for example, Spectrum Halibite sold over 100,000 copies, which is pretty darn good numbers for 1980s. Wow. But there was a problem. What was the that, Dave? The only document that Stein had showing any rights to the game was a fax from the researchers, meaning that Stein technically sold a license to a game he didn't own. <gasps> Oh, no. I know, right? So he reached back out to them, and he asked for a contract to the rights. He began negotiations the same way, by fax, 
offering them 75% of the revenue generated uh, that he had already generated through the license and was going to generate for that matter. However, if you'll recall right at the top, wasn't that long ago, maybe you have the memory of, a, of goldfish. I don't know. There were no intellectual property rights in the USSR and all computer software that was imported and exported through the country was done through so through a government entity called Elorg, which meant that in order to get this like officially out of this country, they were going to have to go through Elorg. Now Elorg took the ball and came out of the gate serious, demanding eighty percent of all revenues, and so talk got serious. So Stein ends up flying over to Russia, goes to Moscow, ends up visiting with Elorg representatives on several occasions and eventually came to an agreement in which he signed a 10-year worldwide contract license on Tetris for all current and future computer systems. Now, through these negotiations, Alexei and his supervisor were surprised to find out that the game was already on sale and that Stein had claimed to own the rights prior to the agreement. Because of how it went down to this point, there would be no money that they would receive from any of those sales. And when Alexei found this out, he was quoted as saying that he was just happy that so many people were enjoying his game. So very humble person. Uh, Yeah, I would definitely say so with that. But wait, it gets even worse. What? So in 1988, now remember, Stein made this agreement here, right? And got a 10-year license. But prior to that, he had sold all these licenses and all those license agreements were still floating out there. So in 1988, Spectrum Holobyte sells their Japanese rights to computer games and arcade machines to Hank Rogers of Bulletproof Games. Coincidentally, Mirrorsoft sells its Japanese rights to Atari Games subsidiary Tengen, who we've talked about before in a previous episode, which in turn sold the Japanese arcade rights to Sega and the console rights to a company called BPS, who was, who was slated to publish versions for Japanese computers, which included the Nintendo Family Computer or the Famicom, which basically is the Japanese Nintendo Entertainment System, Japanese NES. So at this point, there were roughly about a dozen companies that all believed they held the rights to Tetris, while it was in fact Stein who basically retained the rights for home computer versions. And it's really crazy because when you think about it, everyone that was involved in the Soviet Union here had no idea of all these deals that Stein had negotiating. And one thing, one fact is certain, it's that nobody was receiving any money for, for any of this stuff. I mean, the licensing, the you know, no, they, the licenses were sold. You know what I mean? Right. So everyone was making money except for the creators of Tetris, basically. Same, seems seems to be what they, they were more about the game than the money, though. Very true. And the game was a success. Let's be honest. It, it was a very good game. Game was incredibly successful. It was, it was selling copies hand over foot. So in 1988, when Nintendo was preparing to launch its first handheld system, which was the Game Boy, it it showed interest in securing Tetris as one of the games. Now, Hank Rogers, who had bought the 
Japanese rights um, from Spectrum Halibite was a close friend, I don't know about close, close, but was a friend of Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi. And so Yamauchi went to Rogers about getting handheld rights for the Game Boy. So Rogers goes back to Atari, who has Marisoft rights, if you'll, if you'll recall, and he, he basically wanted to negotiate for handheld rights, but has no luck doing so. So he goes to Stein, finds out that Stein has rights. He goes back to Stein. Stein agrees to sign a contract, but explains that he has to consult with Elorg first and then just ghosts him. So Rogers tries several times to reach out to Stein and then starts to suspect that there's something fishy about Stein's licensing rights and really starts to suspect a breach of contract. So he decides to go right to the source and in February of 1989, he flies to Moscow. He drops by the Elorg offices uninvited. Uh, uninvited. <laughs> yeah. He, dro- he drops by the Elorg offices uninvited. Coincidentally, he drops by on the same day that Stein and a manager from Microsoft have made an appointment at the offices as well. So all three of them and the Elorg representatives end up at this meeting. And during these discussions, Hank Rogers explains that he wants to secure the rights for the Game Boy. So they sit down with the president of Elorg and hash something out. Rogers and, and the president come to an agreement. And then Rogers whips out a Tetris Nintendo cartridge. And the president is floored. He's beside himself. He believed that through the previous deal with Stein, that he had only signed the rights away for Tetris as it pertained to computer systems. Immediately, Rogers is accused of illegal publication, but he defends himself by explaining that he he had obtained the rights via Atari Games, which had itself signed an agreement with Stein previously. And so this web of all these licensing agreements begins to unravel, basically, and they slowly came to the realization of how convoluted the licensing agreements of Tetris really were because of all these backhanded deals that Sign agreed to sign right in the beginning of all things. So to its credit, Elor drafted up a plan to regain possession of the rights and obtain better commercial agreements. Now, while this was all happening, Hank Rogers actually befriends Alexei Pajanov, the creator uh, they 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 become friends over a game of Go. And as a result, Rogers would get the full support of the Tetris's creator, you know, to pl- to to have and license the game, which admittedly was frustrating for all other parties. What inevitably happened was that Elorg suggested that Stein's right be canceled and that Nintendo be granted the game rights for both the home and handheld console market. So Rogers flies back to America to convince Nintendo of America to sign up for the rights now that that was suggested. And he signs a contract with the Nintendo of America president, Arakawa. The contract was signed for $500,000 plus 50 cents a cartridge. Once this contract was signed, an updated contract was sent to Stein himself. One of the clauses in it actually defined a computer as a machine with a screen and a keyboard. Now Stein signed the contract without paying too much attention to this specific clause and only later realized his mistake. Now, once this was done in March of 1989, 
Nintendo sends Atari a cease and desist on its production of the NES version of Tetris. So Atari reaches out to Mirrorsoft, who assured them that they still retain the rights that they were sold. And, and we go in the circle again. Nintendo holds its stance. Atari says, hey, we have the licensing. Mirrorsoft says, hey, we have the licensing. And away we go. At this point, the Mirrorsoft president actually reaches out to the leader of the Soviet Union, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, to cancel the contract. He petitions him, hey, help me cancel the contract between Elorg and Nintendo. However, the Nintendo contract was way more lucrative than any of the other contracts that were signed until that point. And so Elorg was smart. They just they refused to give in, right? Always got to go where the money is. Yeah, that's a smart thing to do. It usually is a smart thing to do. And so it was that on June 15th, 1989, Nintendo and Atari found themselves in a legal battle fought in the courts of San Francisco. Atari Games was arguing that the Nintendo Entertainment System was a computer, as indicated by its Japanese name, the Famicom, which was an abbreviation of Family Computer. Their whole central argument was that the Famicom was designed to convert into a computer via its extension cord. Now, if they won, they would retain the initial license and be able to support the production of their game. And while if you know video games, you probably know that they didn't win this argument. <laughs> Alexi was Alexi actually showed up in court and he stressed that the original argument, the licensing agreement they made only concerned computers and no other machines. And so inevitably the judge rules that Mirrorsoft and Spectrum Holobyte never received any explicit authorization, allowing them to market this game on a console. And so inevitably the judge ruled in Nintendo's favor. The next day, Atari withdraws its NES version from sale while thousands of unsold copies remain in its warehouse. Also, aside from this version, Sega had planned to release a Genesis version in April, which was all in the middle of this mess, but decided to cancel its release ahead of time. Luckily, they only made about 10 copies of it before they decided, uh-uh, we can see where this is going, the writing's on the wall, you know? That's just one giant mess all around. I, Yeah, I, for such a simple game, I had no idea it was such a complex backstory yeah it, it it it's it's one of the best examples that we have of, of of a licensing fiasco and i mean to be fair it has a lot to do with the fact that it was created in the soviet union and they don't have they didn't have intellectual you know intellectual property rights and then when the soviet union re, uh, dissolved every you know i'd say things got convoluted but they didn't because elorg became a private company that kept the rights for the all the you know licensing and time periods. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Now, throughout throughout all this, Pajitnov, the creator, gained some reputation here in the West as he traveled to America for his legal battle. He was invited places by journalists and publishers, and he began to really fully understand how popular and impactful his games were. And that it's he he basically they sold millions of copies of it without him making a, a cent. And even at this point, he remained very humble and proud of the game. And he quote called himself an electronic ambassador of benevolence. In January of 1990, Alexei was invited by Spectrum Holobyte to the, to the Consumer Electronics Show. 
And it was really here that he was fully immersed in American life for the first time. After CES, he began to more fully explore, explore American culture, and he engaged in interviews with several hosts, including the directors of Nintendo. He loved the freedom and advantages of Western society, and every time he returned back to the, the Soviet Union, he would speak fondly of his time outside of the USSR, you know, to his colleagues. And so it really came in as no surprise to them that in 1991, Alexei emigrated to the United States. He moved to Seattle and he began to produce games for Spectrum Holobyte. Five years later, in April 1996, as agreed with the Academy 10 years prior, the rights to Tetris reverted back to him. And so in June of 1996, he and Hank Rogers, his friend that had kind of helped him into this mess or through this mess, depending on how you look at it, they collectively founded the Tetris Company to manage the rights on all platforms. All previous agreements had now expired and the Tetris Company became the exclusive licensee of the Tetris brand. Now, when the Tetris Company was founded, because of the way the licensing fell at the time, like I said, Elorg was still around and they maintained about 50% of the licensing rights and 50% of this company. while he and Hank owned the other 50% of the rights. And so here in June of 1996, when the Tetris company was founded 12 years after the game was originally created, Alexei Pajanov found himself for the first time in a position to profit from the creation of his own hit game. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is just way more insanity than I, I, I ever imagined with this game. I know, it's just Tetris. Yeah, no, seriously. It's just Tetris. So there's a little bit more to it. In 2002, uh, they were able to buy Elorg out of the company, buy all the remaining rights from Elorg. And they put all these rights into a company created for Alexi called Tetris Holding. And that company now owns Tetris rights worldwide. So Tetris Holding owns Tetris rights and is owned by Alexi. And the exclusive licensee of Tetris games that are owned by Tetris Holding is still the Tetris Company, which is half owned by Tetris Holding and half owned by Hank Rogers Company, Blue Planet, Planet Software. So Hank and Alexi now each own half of... It's kind of weird. So they own half of Tetris, the Tetris Company, which is the licensee, but the rights to Tetris itself are owned by Tetris Holding, which is Alexi's company in itself. So technically Tetris is his, but they run a company that that is the only way you can license the game, if that makes sense. It kind of came together like Pokemon did, I guess, uh, or not. I don't know. It's funny because now when I think of Tetris company, I think of the Pokemon company, which is the company that licenses all Pokemon stuff, you know? Uh, yeah, but I don't think quite as successful <laughs> as the Pokemon company. Yeah. Um, 
we'll get to that in a second. I get to that in a second. Now, aside from licensing out the Tetris company, um, are the, te- the the Tetris company licensing out the games? Pretty much most of what they do that I found is protect their intellectual property by removing unlicensed clones from various markets. Now, there's something really cool about the Tetris company. Uh, I couldn't find it. I looked, but apparently in order to license Tetris, there's this whole bit of standards that you have to abide by, like what the blocks are and how they turn and interact and what the way the buttons in the game are, are the way the buttons are in the game. Like there's this whole set of guidelines that you have to abide by if you license from the Tetris company, which is, I don't know, kind of cool actually. Yeah, no, that is actually now real quick, real quick before we move on to reviews and then talk a little bit more about Tetris. If you've never played Tetris before, why, why, why? Maybe you've never played a video game. Maybe. I still think if someone, Rob, do you think if someone's never played a video game that they still might know what Tetris is? I would imagine that at least knowing what it is, unless I guess if they were older, they may not. If they weren't around people that played games and had no reason to be. Um, but as younger people who grew up around games, it, I'd be hard pressed to not to believe that all of them have never even heard of it at the very least. Mm. I mean, there's not much to Tetris if you don't know. Coincidentally, it's a puzzle game where you fill in lines on a board by moving different shaped playing pieces into place. Once you complete a line, it disappears and you get points. And as the game goes on, the lines get faster, making it harder to create lines. And you keep playing until the entire playing field becomes full or rather a block fills the top, hits the top, like a line at the top of the the playing field. That's it, right? that's it there's got to be more dave i mean other people have tried other like gameplay features but that's the core of the game um some versions have multiplayer where the goal is just to last longer than your opponent but i i mean we can talk about variations on it which which i will i will when we i will when we talk about its legacy before we get on to what else Tetris has done and talk about the legacy part, this is the part where we we look at reviews. Were you able to find reviews for Tetris? Uh, yeah, I, I think we found some, Dave. Yeah, surprisingly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, take it away. As we frequently talk about, it's hard to find reviews from the '80s. With that being said, Tetris is a classic, and its core gameplay loop hasn't changed over the years. So. We managed to pull some reviews from different versions throughout the years. Okay. I guess that's one way to go about it. Let's uh, let's take it away. All right, Dave. Well, first up, we have Brett Allen Weiss on AllGame.com, who called Tetris the single most addictive video game of all time. Okay. All right. He writes that Tetris for the Nintendo Entertainment System loses nothing in the translation from the PC. It's a fun game with crisp accurate controls the music is cheerful without being corny and it flows smoothly with the gameplay while a handful of gamers claim that tetris is boring because you don't kill anyone most people love this game 
Tetris by design has simple, although elegant, graphics. Some may see this lack of graphic sophistication as a problem, but with Tetris, it doesn't matter. You'll be having so much fun, you won't notice. It's kind of true. It's one of those games that I, I, I don't know if the graphics matter. At least the gameplay, they don't affect the gameplay. They don't affect the gameplay. I mean, they affect the aesthetic feel of the game, but they don't affect the gameplay. I don't know, Dave. I feel like the graphics can totally affect the gameplay, because if I can't tell what shape I'm looking at... Mm, well, mm. I, okay, I guess there's that. Okay, all right, move it, move it along. Uno momento, por favor, resetting Krabby's. All right, Dave. So with that, next up, we have from 2009 in Nintendo Magazine. They published a list of 100 best Nintendo games. And you know where they rank Tetris at, Dave? Where's that? Number five. Number five. Number five. Why is that? What did they how, what did they feel about Tetris? Well, they wrote that it hasn't got a plot. Any main characters or particularly impressive graphics. All true. That was it. Okay. I guess that's a good reason to put it number five. <laughs> no, no. They finished, but Tetris has got everything. If we're talking about simplistic genius puzzling with a near infinite appeal. Okay. Tetris ranks alongside games like Space Invaders, Pac-Man, and of course, Super Mario Brothers as one of the most instantly recognizable iconic titles ever released. In particular, that theme music. If you can't hum it to yourself, you really need to boot it up again and have a listen. It even randomly inspired a release as a proper track, taking the form of a terrible Euro cover, Euro pop cover version, masterminded by Andrew Lloyd Webber, believe it or not. I believe it. Yeah, it's not that unbelievable. So while there have been many different versions of what's basically the same game, it was the original Game Boy version that properly kickstarted the Tetris craze. And though you may raise an eyebrow at how high Tetris has been placed, we don't think anyone can argue that it's anything other than a brilliantly intuitive, addictive, and accessible game. Like the effect Super Mario Bros. had on the NES... Tetris was the game that made the Game Boy brand a true gaming giant. And it still shares that timeless pick-up-and-play feel that seems to be a common theme among all of our top five selections. And because of that, Tetris also subtly indicated the direction in which the video games industry would eventually turn as one of the first titles to truly attract a huge mass-market fan base. I wonder what they... What do you think they mean by subtly indicated the direction, like simplicity-wise? Maybe designing a game that wasn't focused just towards dudes? Yeah, maybe. That's fair. You know, because it it just was really for anyone, and it wasn't marketed one way or the other. It was just, hey, here's a game. Play it. And everyone's like, oh my god, this game's great! Can you hum the theme song to Tetris without being prompted? Uh, I probably could, Dave. I'm not going to at the moment, though. Mm. 
I was just thinking about it. The version of Tetris I've been playing all week doesn't have it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, you I got know it. I did. <laughs> like I said, I'm not going to hum it, but I know it. I was I was thinking that that the version of Tetris that I've been playing, the modern version doesn't have that theme in it. Like the mode I was playing doesn't have that theme in it, but it's still they're right. It's still there. It's it hasn't gone anywhere. I can I can hear it. I can hear it. It's forever etched into your memory forever etched into the memory i had the game boy version the game boy version ended up being a release it was released with the with the game boy so if you had a game boy you had a, you had tetris and i um i played i played more than my share of tetris on the game boy so. yeah i can say the same i'm yep. pretty sure i got your copy of tetris i'm pretty sure you did yeah i played the hell out of that I don't even know where my Game Boy is. I ended up buying a new one like years and years and years later from a friend and I have it again. So nice, nice, nice. nice. Well, Dave, that's really all that we have for critic reviews. Okay. so next we're going to move on to who we really care to hear about the gamers. Yes, the gamers, the gamers. So first up, we have Ma on Moby Games, who calls it one of the best things to come out of the Soviet Russia. Tetris is a simple yet insanely addictive puzzle game. Bricks fall down from the top of the screen, and you have to shift and rotate them so they land in unbroken horizontal lines. Every time you make a line, it gets removed and you get more playing space. You lose if your bricks pile up to the top of the screen. Tetris is a unique combination of logic, pattern recognition, and reflexes. It's a game anyone can play and enjoy. Tetris was and still is a cultural phenomenon. The music was originally a Russian folk song, but does anyone recognize it? Recognize it as that? Hell no. It's the theme from Tetris. That's true. Yeah, I didn't know it was a Russian folk song. It's just Tetris. The little electronic blips the game makes when you rotate a piece have burned themselves forever into your memory. I've had dreams about playing Tetris. What makes Tetris so special? Personally, I think it's like a jigsaw puzzle. It taps into the innate housekeeper part in all of us that wants to turn chaos into order. Some psychologists even draw Freudian comparisons to the game, although maybe that's taking things too far. The game's low memory and graphical requirements mean that it has been ported to virtually everything with an LED screen, including calculators and wristwatches and keychains. Tetris is the most ported game in history. Nothing else even comes close. I don't know. It's true, actually. It's true. I mean, I'm waiting for the day that I can play Tetris on my toaster. Okay, cool. Anyway, Dave, I'm not going to get my Tetris toast. We'll move on to our next speaker, Tetris who is toast. Cartanum from Moby Games, who says that they've played a lot of puzzle games over the years. So many, in fact, they can instantly tell when a developer has simply said, look, why don't we just copy Tetris instead? And more often than not, they do. Over 50% of console puzzles games can be classified like Tetris with more stuff. In most cases, sequels can be bigger, badder, and bolder in style than its original. But I can safely say aloud that Tetris here in its black and gray form on the Game Boy, still the best of the series. Hands down, without a doubt, no question. 
okay, maybe I'm going overboard, but I'm not completely wrong. When you have one of the first games, if not the first game, to be released on the chunky handheld and still be this addictive has got to say something about how good it really was. But it was so simple in design, and perhaps that was its key. It was. It was a simple, good game. I mean, what what else? What else do you want to know about it? You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I mean, there's the, the game was simple. It was easy, and you know, it was it was addictive just because of that. Like, it made you feel good. You just kept getting that serotonin release, and you're like, "Wow, I did it! I'm doing it! I'm having fun!" And then you lose, and then you try again. So, Rob. At the top of the episode, I teased you, and I know that was a long time ago, and it's hard to keep track of everything. I teased you about seeing shapes and colors everywhere, remember? Yes. That is a real-world phenomenon called either the Tetris Effect or Tetris Syndrome, and it occurs when people devote so much time and attention to a singular activity that it begins to pattern their thoughts, mental images, and dreams. Obviously, it takes its name from the video game Tetris. People who have played Tetris for a prolonged amount of time can find themselves thinking about the way different shapes in the real world can fit together, such as the boxes on a supermarket shelf or the buildings on a street. They may see colored images of pieces falling into place on an an invisible layout at the edges of their visual fields or see it when they close their eyes. Instead of counting sheep, you're playing Tetris when you close your eyes. And as they are falling asleep, typically they can see colored moving images as well. So it's an actual thing. Those experiencing Tetris effects may feel that they can't prevent the thoughts images or dreams and it's not just a tetris thing just so you know the tetris effect can can the tetris effect can occur with other video games but it's always referred to as a tetris effect because that's where it was first observed um, so it's just like taking something from a video game and constantly seeing it yeah actually so they've actually tried to expand the concept into gaming transfer syndrome or something like that where in where people will start to see like health bars above people's heads or scores next to people or they'll hear sounds from a game in real life when they don't actually exist um gtp game transfer phenomenon that's what it was called i i looked into it a little bit but i didn't want to i didn't want to go too much into it for lack of time game transfer phenomenon it it, it's an expansion of the tetris effect so as a side note uh the tetris effect also can be uh, also has been known to occur with non-video games for example the someone could see the illusion of curved lines after doing a jigsaw puzzle they could see chess pieces and unrelated objects or even speed cubers you know the guys who solve rubik's cubes really fast have been noted as seeing basically the rubik's cube algorithm involuntarily in their minds when they're not speed cubing 
the Tetris effect can happen. Basically, it happens when games blur into real life, which is really crazy. When I was in college, I wrote, I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes of a little sick TV show uh, that I wanted to make with my friends when we were doing short film stuff. And it it's actually this whole concept. The uh, main character is losing his mind because he can see video games when he's not playing video games. And that's the whole that's the whole premise of it. I wrote I wrote a whole lot of it, actually. I never did anything with it. It's kind of sad. Um, yeah, but it's a real well, thing. Tetris find, is a real find thing. Find a cartoonist, Dave. That we can teach the world. I hadn't planned on it being a cartoon. It was actually going to be live action with special effects because it was going to be live version with special effects. So, so that's the Tetris effect really happens. And now I kind of want to talk about Tetris throughout the years. Um, for starters, Alexei Pajanov made four different Tetris games. Did you know that? Uh, I had no idea. So we know that here in 84, he made Tetris in 1989 for the PC and other, you know, Commodore, Apple, Spectrum, things like that. He made a game called Weltris. Now, Weltris was obviously it's a sequel. It still has the game's falling block gameplay, but now the pits, the pit is three dimensions and you view the board from above. And so basically, basically as the blocks descend into the well, like away from you, they can be rotated left or right along the walls. And it, once you get to the f- floor, basically you're making, it's the same, it's the same gaming concept, but it's, it, you're looking at it from the top in 3d with four walls and you're still trying to rotate the same Tetris blocks and make lines disappear until the blocks come up to the top of the well it's just it's a three it's it's weird because it's 3d gameplay but with 2d blocks if that makes sense so in 1990 he made hatris which is exactly what it sounds like it's tetris with hats (laughs) this one ended up on in arcades on the nes the game boy and the turbo graphics 16 it plays just like Tetris and that there are hats that fall down the screen and they have to be arranged in specific patterns to make the make the hats disappear. And yeah, you have to eliminate all the hat designs in specific ways until they stack all the way to the top. So that was your third Tetris game. And the last game he made was called Faces dot 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 Tris 3. And this was made for the Macintosh, the Amiga, and MS-DOS computers. Uh, This is, despite being called Tris 3, is the fourth in his Tris series, which includes Tetris, Hatris, and Weltris. In Faces, horizontal slices of two persons' faces fall side by side from the top of the screen, and the player must position them before they hit bottom. So basically, you have to rotate these slices of faces to make the face line up. And if you don't do it, the line states and you keep doing this until the the pieces get to the top of the screen. Alexi actually made four Tetris games. Well, damn. Never knew about that. Rob, have you played any versions of Tetris through the years? I know. Obviously, I played the Game Boy one and I'm sure I played it on something else, too. But I don't know about like 
what versions they were or anything like that. I feel like I was always just played like single player Tetris. So I know that they have like multiplayer and stuff, but I've never done any of those. So last year, two years ago, because I think it was during the pandemic when they released Tetris 99 on this, the Nintendo network, you never tried that one. Um, no, no, I didn't. So Tetris 99 was released on the Switch Online. If you were a Nintendo Online member, you got it for free. And it's multiplayer Tetris, where you play in games of 99 players at one time to see who lasts the longest. So it's essentially a mix of Tetris and a Battle Royale, because that's it, a mix and a Battle Royale, um, where you just have, you have to keep playing Tetris until you're the last player standing. Uh, I played it. I played it, I don't know, two or three weeks when it first came out. It was a 20, I don't know, 19, 2020, somewhere in there. Um, oh, 2019, I wrote it down. Dur. Uh, yeah, Tetris 99. The current version of Tetris, if you did want to play Tetris, uh, you wanted to play an official licensed version, is called Tetris Effect. Which, ironically, we just talked about what the Tetris Effect was, didn't we? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. It's this concept that they wanted to recreate. So the producer of Tetris Effect wanted to mimic the concept by making a version of Tetris that's set to music with a zone that players would achieve while playing. It was originally released on PS4. It's now also on Windows, the Xbox One, Switch, and now VR platforms. To its credit, it's won a ton of awards, including Best VR Game, Best Puzzle Game, Best Music, and a few publications actually named it their game of the year back in 2018 when it was released for PS4. In case you were wondering, it's an excellent VR game. Like, really, really great VR game. It literally does what it says. It has great music and visuals, and you put the headset on, and you get lost in playing Tetris. And the, the game adds beats to the music as you hit the buttons to rotate the pieces, and as the lines shift, it all happens with the music. And it is just a game that is very, very easy to get lost in. If you're looking for a VR title that is like meditation, but not quite meditation, it's like the game equivalent of being in Zen and meditation. This is probably one of the best ones. It's it's highly recommended. Highly, highly recommended. Well, damn, I'll have to check it out then. It's really good. If you're a Xbox Game Pass member, um, it's actually available on the Xbox and PC Game Pass. And if you have it on the PC Game Pass, you can play that version. You can play the VR version as a Game Pass game, which is what I did. So it'll load up in Steam VR or Oculus VR and you can you can play it in VR. So if you're a Game Pass member, you don't have to buy it on your Oculus. Just play it through the link. Got it. Got it. Really quick. Tetris holds the Guinness Book of World Record, the Guinness Book World Record for the game that has been ported to the most platforms. Officially, the book listed as being ported to at least 70 different systems since 1984. And between those 70 different systems, there have been more than 200 official versions of Tetris. Oh, so you talked about Pokemon being prolific, but, you know, yeah. Now, I one thing that's really interesting because you said toaster, and I don't know if I've seen um, if I've seen 
Tetris on a toaster, but I have seen Doom on a toaster. And <laughs> the Guinness, wait, wait for it. The Guinness Book of World Records actually makes a note of that. It says specifically in the record that if the focus shifts to unofficial ports, because it specifically says 200 official versions between 70 systems. But it makes a note that if it's unofficial ports we're talking about, that it's distinctly possible that Doom is the most ported game of all time because Doom has been put in toasters, on fridges, on bikes, on printers. And no joke, because I've seen it, People, ha- I've even watched one guy play the original Doom on the screen of a pregnancy test. Oh my god, shut up. Seriously, I, I'll go, go on YouTube. I'll go on YouTube, it's somewhere on there. He reprogrammed the, the, a, a pregnancy test, the screen on it, to be able to play Doom. Well, actually, it plays on the pregnancy test. Doom... I mean, let's be honest. Way back in '95, they didn't need much out of the out of the computer, so you know that's just doing too much. It's interesting. Uh. Tetris is the second best selling video game franchise of all time, behind Mario. Between all the various Mario games, that's Mario Kart, Super Mario Brothers, and Mario Brothers, and Mario this and Mario that, they've sold 760 million copies of games. Tetris is at number two with 495 million copies of games. Now, you said Pokemon rivals it. Pokemon is actually number three. Up until this point, they've only sold 415 million copies of all the Pokemon games. So Tetris has actually outsold Pokemon in all the years it's been around. Okay, but if we look at the worth of the Tetris company and Pokemon company, which was what oh. I was saying. Oh, yeah. Now, if you're looking at dollar amounts, no doubt that. Um... Sorry, but I don't know anyone who's got plushies of the yellow square. It's true. You're right. Actually, I'm sure there are people who do. That's not that. <laughs> I guarantee there's going to be some people out there and they're going to rage at Rob. You think so? No, probably not. I don't even think that Tetris makes a blip on the profitability um, because of they don't really license or do stuff like that. Um, No doubt that just about every other series on the face of the earth is going to have outdone Tetris in terms of in terms of the money aspect. I don't know about E.T. (laughs) I don't know about E.T. either. Hold on, I gotta save a cat. Alright, Salem. So, yeah. Tetris has sold a bajillion copies. And, um... Good for it. That's that's Tetris. Tetris is, uh... It was not... It was not a straightforward path by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Tetris has a, a kind of a convoluted history. But through all that, Alexei, its creator was very humble and and just very proud of what he created and that so many people were enjoying it. And then at some point he was able to actually profit off of it. And now he's probably doing pretty well for himself. So there you go. That's good. So, you know, we talked about Pokemon. We talked about Mario. We've actually talked about a lot of franchises in the past. If you wanted to learn more about those franchises, uh, for example, If you want to learn about Pokemon and just how stupid rich the Pokemon company is, we talked about that on our Pokemon episode. And you can find that Pokemon episode by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. 
Also on our website, you can find a calendar for all of our upcoming episodes. If you'd like to send us an email or on our website, there's a little submission form where you could submit your 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 memories, links, stuff like that. And that calendar has been updated and now does go through the end of the year. I took the time to put the calendar up. So now we're covered for the rest of the year. You can also find our biographies. You can find for each episode a list of all my sources um, and and links when we talk about various things. If you want to do some research for yourself and learn more about these games, you can find a link to our social media. I'm in various platforms as David is wrong. Rob, hit us with your social media tag. I uh, can be found on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. R-I-P-Z. Family rips. Indeed, yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week it was Tetris. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about, in this case, Tetris, what it took from the world as its inspiration in this case, Pentominoes, or when it came back to the world as its legacy, in that the most popular game of all time. While creating these stories, we have to admit that we learn things too. Uh, I always am a firm believer that when you teach, you learn. And so as part of acknowledging that, we like to go around and talk about our biggest takeaways for each week. So Rob, what did you learn today? I learned that there was a freaking nightmare of a backstory behind Tetris, which is such a fun and pleasant game, but it's such a dark and terrible and horrid backstory of licensing nightmares and, and now, tears well, and blood and sweat. It's so kind of crazy because I, I'll be honest. I'm just going to come out and say I had no idea either. I, I, I mean, again, when, when I picked these games, you and I look at a calendar and we go, okay, so for this week, we do it at the beginning of the year, right? Every year when we get towards, let's say the end of each year, we look ahead to the next year, we pull up a calendar and we go, okay, so what game came out on this week that we can talk about? What game came out in this week we can talk about? And some weeks that works out really well. And other weeks, it's it's really hard to dig out a story out of a game. And admittedly, when we looked at a calendar and we just picked Tetris, I, I wasn't expecting much because it's Tetris. Like, it's Tetris. I, how fancy can Tetris be? You know what I mean? So I was really surprised to find that the backstory of Tetris was just as puzzling as the game itself, admittedly. So it um, that's crazy. What's even more interesting to me is when you think about it, by the time it really cemented itself here, I would say that, yeah, it sold a lot of copies prior to that. But the Game Boy copy, when Nintendo brought it over here, that was for a lot of people like the introduction, like when it when it really picked up steam. Right. By that time, most of that was mostly resolved, I guess you could say. Now, it was still later that the that Alexi got rights to the game, but by the time the Game Boy version came out, they had really started to solve the problem of this wicked web of licensing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So you are right. It is just crazy. Absolutely crazy. Is that uh, your takeaway as well, Dave? That's my takeaway. I had I had absolutely no clue. I had no clue it was such a mess. So that was what that was really fascinating for me to to um, 
to learn about and write about and and convey to everyone else kind of kind of a mess but we got through it we solved the puzzle and here we are at the end of all things aka today's episode and i'm ready to take it out of here before i do that though rob what would you like to add well dave if you never played tetris you're crazy yeah, go, go play that game. Go play specifically play Tetris Effect. It's called Tetris Effect Connected. They added the connected version because it's got multiplayer. It is I, I can't even begin to convey to you how how much of getting in the zone, even the non VR version. It's just a great game with great music and great visuals. They did an excellent, excellent job on crafting this version of Tetris. It is well worth some time. Just take it from me. Yes, but also, thank you so much for listening to us. You must be crazy to do so. But yeah. we appreciate you. We do. We're all a little crazy around here, and that's what makes us all have so much fun with life. Very true. Very true. Thank you so much. We we appreciate you listening to us every week. If you haven't already, hit us up on anywhere that you listen to a podcast and, and rate us, review us. You know, come to our Discord and and give us some feedback. We have been on this for 93 episodes and I mean we're we're plans we, we have the episodes planned through the end of the year, which is will put us at 121, 122. We're not going anywhere, probably gonna go beyond that. And so it's time. Go rate us. We've been here a while. We want to hear what y'all think of us, please. So, Yes, please. And with that, I'm going to take it out of here. Rob, next week we're going to look at the very first open world computer game. Okay. The, first, the first one ever. Okay. Not only was it the first open world game, it was also one of the very first definitive commercial RPGs for the computer. And realistically, it laid the foundation for the whole RPG genre as we know it today. What's that? So originally released for the Apple II in June of 1981, Ultima revolves around a quest to find and destroy the gem of immortality. Uh, You may think that Ultima is just a basic fantasy Dungeons and Dragons type RPG, but it's actually a weird complex video game that includes time travel and space combat and all these weird things that i i think a lot of people have no clue about given that who plays who's played ultima from 1981 you know what i mean right so as part of its history we'll also look at its creator richard garriott and talk about the company he founded, which is Origin Systems. So yeah, we gotta we get to we get to look at Ultima. We get to look at one of the old OG original gangsta role playing games. So join us again next week as we go dungeon crawling on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Oh.